This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is dedicated to the more than 81,000 Americans who remain missing from World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Cold War, Gulf Wars, and other conflicts. Out of the more than 81,000 missing, 75% of the losses are located in the Indo-Pacific, and over 41,000 of the missing are presumed to be lost at sea. On September 16, 1952, Captain Troy Cope was in a dogfight with six MiG-15s, or at least so he thought, near the border between North Korea and China. It was the Korean War. Cope's wingman said he lost visual and radio contact with him. He was never seen again. There's more to this story and the powerful display of what it means to leave no man behind, no matter where, when, or for how long. Retired Air Force fighter pilot, Lieutenant General Ralph Jodas, joined me to share Captain Cope's story. And these two have a unique connection. You're really going to enjoy this one. I know I did. Lieutenant General Ralph Jodas, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast. Brian, thanks uh, for having me on today. So it's uh, right out the gate, Jodas, Jodas, <laughs> let's address this uh, this connection. You are my dad and uh, no need to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. So dad, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. And I know we've been chatting back and forth, not only on this, but other ones you've been working on. And I'm really excited for what you're doing uh, with this and, and where this I know is going to go, and especially with your enthusiasm and dedication to this. Uh, there's, as we know, there's a gazillion stories out there, and uh, and you're going to unearth them, which is great. We're we're excited about it, and thank you so much for helping walk through uh, this story that we're going to tell today. We've got a pretty steady drumbeat as we release this podcast. You know, episode one, we're talking to Commander Kirk Lippold, who had command of the USS Cole the day it was attacked. By Al-Qaeda in 2000, we lost 17 sailors, but they saved dozens more. And, and he told that story and, and just incredibly powerful to hear about how his crew continued to pick up the six, save their ship, number one, save their shipmates' lives. Really pretty powerful story there. We're then very blessed and honored to be able to speak to Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson, who flew the Pavehawk helicopter that pulled the lone survivor, Marcus Luttrell, out of Afghanistan and just hear the incredible story of not just that moment of picking that man up, but all the training and dedication that goes into it. And we lose this elite fighter uh, in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, we lost uh, lives that day as well. But then these Air Force Reserve guys step up to the challenge and launch in with these two Payfalks and A-10s and all these other things happening. But they're the ones that go pick them up. And it almost doesn't happen and then today we're going to talk about Captain Troy Cope, who was part of the Korean conflict, who for 52 years was lost. And we're going to tell that story. So, Dad, let's give a little context as to where we're at. Let's provide a little context as to why you're joining us to share Captain Cope's story of service before self and leave no man behind. And there is a deeper connection between you two that we will explore as well. But you were the defense attache to China during part of Captain Cope's story that we'll explain. So let's go back though to September 16th, 1952. Before we talk specifics, help our listeners with some additional context. Where are we at in the world? 16 September, 1952, what's going on? 
as we know, we ended World War II in 1945. And of course, out of that was a complete restructuring of Europe and also of uh, East Asia, particularly East Asia. Um, and so as things have started to occur in East Asia, you have uh, the rise of uh, communist China, Chiang Kai-shek and his folks uh, evacuate, move on over to Taiwan. Um, and then you have uh, North Korea deciding that it is going to be a communist North Korea and basically invade South Korea. And we have a war on the peninsula that by 1952 is uh, September 52 been going on for a couple for a couple of years. Um, there had been attempts there to get different peace talks going on with regard to the Korean Peninsula. Not really happening. We've been back and forth on the land battle. The North Koreans had taken over almost the entire peninsula. Uh, we come back in, we drive them back. Uh, and then they, within a big amphibious landing, um, and then they're pushing back. And, and I think by this point in time, don't quote me, but I think I'm pretty close. They're kind of, we're kind of settling into this 38th parallel, which eventually becomes a demilitarized zone. And it's, uh, you know, it's a taking of a hill here, the taking of a hill there. But throughout this entire, operation on the Korean Peninsula during the, the, what we now call the Korean War, there's a huge air battle going on um, between the United States and some of our allies and partners that are there, but primarily the United States and who and what we originally thought were the North Koreans, but come to find out that there's Russian pilots that are flying MiGs uh, there also. And of course, they are well better trained. Um, and the MiG is considered a pretty formidable air-to-air -air platform, can turn pretty quick. But we are doing a hell of a job with the F-86. And we do, we're doing all that to protect our troops on the ground um, and such, and also to allow other aircraft to get to targets to be able to drop bombs and doing that thing. So it was routinely in September 16th of 1952 for flights from both sides up and engaging each other uh, over uh, the skies of uh, North Korea, sometimes very far north, all the way up there at the Yalu River. And some, some Americans probably found themselves on the north side of the Yalu River, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and so that's kind of where we are. And this was, like I said, a daily routine of air-to-air -air combat that was going on. Uh, not really the last time that we had air-to-air mm -hmm. -air combat or air-to-air -air dogfights, as people refer to them. We had some of that, of course, in World War II. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Vietnam War. Um, but uh, certainly the Korean War was uh, was a lot going on with regards to that. And it's the first time where we got jets on jets. Right. Okay. And they're really duking it out above the skies of this conflict. And, the, and important to this story is... There's a lot of assets at play here, right? We got American ships out there. We happen to know very closely an American sailor that is part of World War II. My grandfather, your father, right. part of that, right? So we got American ships out there. We got boots on the ground. We got planes in the sky. We got full on everything sort of happening here. Who, I wasn't planning on talking about this much, but who are these guys engaged in the Korean conflict from the American side? Ton of World War II guys that are that are back in and back in the fold here for this? I don't know what the percentage is, Brian, but there certainly is a large percentage of it. And in fact, in this story with Captain Troy Cope, he was one of four brothers that were in World War II as pilots, if I have that right. And two of them went in back into uh, 
Korea. And so you hear that recurring drumbeat as as you mentioned, you know, with with my dad, your grandfather, who got called back up and were happy to go again because they were all part of that greatest generation. Yep. And if they weren't old enough to be in World War II, uh, many, uh, I think, still wanted to be able to serve, even though we were unsure about this type of a conflict, mm-hmm. as now things are starting to change from what we uh, were fighting in World War II, um, now something that's not as tangible. Um, and there's more questions about, is this worth it? It's in a foreign land, all those other kind of things, small scale. Um, you know, what's the threat to us? Uh, for, as a nation, you know, is it really in our vital interest and those kind of things? So, uh, yes, we have some that are veterans of World War II. Uh, and I don't again, I don't know that percentage. And then we have some that are veterans uh, or not our veterans of World War II, but it's their first time. And then there, there are some not to go all the way there, but there are some who do World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Incredible. You know, uh, Incredible. yeah. So. OK. All right. So let's let's do this, because we're fortunate today in that uh, much of this has been resolved. They were able to go back in and read reports and, and figure things out to kind of backdate this story uh, in a sense. And, and CNN does a pretty large report. I want to read part of that to help set up kind of where we're at. And so it's Captain Cope. They refer to him as Gordy. Uh, it says Gordy Cope and his family. Uh, that's what they called him. He was one of four brothers, like you mentioned, from Norfolk, Arkansas. The four boys joined the Army Air Corps during World War II. Cope left the service after that war and ended up rejoining when the Korean War broke out. So your money on the point for that. He was flying the F-86 Sabre jet on September 16, 1952, when he and his wingman clashed with six MiG-15s near the Yalu River, the border between North Korea and China. Cope quickly found himself out of ammunition, and his wingman said he lost visual and radio contact with Cope. He was never seen again. What the American pilots didn't know then is that they were not up against North Korean pilots in the MiGs. Investigators have since learned Cope and his wingman were fighting more experienced Soviet pilots. So you touched on it a little bit, but in going back and reading the reports uh, and digging into this more, what happened up there in those skies on that day? Well, obviously, when you're at (laughs) six to two odds, um, you know, three to one odds, those are tough odds. Um, and if even in a superior position or superior pilot, um, you still have people who can get get on your six. Uh, and if you get separated from your wingman, you lose what we call mutual support. And in flying uh, fighters, uh, we always talk about and we always have mutual support so that you can be there to support each other. And um, and if he was out of ammunition now, he's basically. He can't shoot him. He can threaten him with his nose. The, and the other pilot, the make pilot, might think he's got ammo. But if he if he can't shoot at him and then he figures that out, the other pilot, well, then he knows he's got him in a position. And now Troy, uh, now Gordy's just literally fighting for his life to try to outmaneuver him, maybe get down to the deck, meaning get down to the ground, get in between the mountains and run away, head south, do something like that. Um, and I thought I remember somewhere along the lines that the weather, there was clouds below and that he went down, you know, he went into the weather. Once you go into the weather, if it's pretty close to the ground, you know, you don't know whether he got shot. Um, it sounds like, again, and we'll get to the Russian report that he did, the airplane did get shot up. So his wingman, uh, they, they essentially get, um, you know, removed from each other, loses all contact with them. And, and as far as we know, at that point, uh, we've lost Captain Cope. 
And, yeah. and so what happens here, though, is rather interesting. So this is 1952. This all happens before 1960. It takes us 40 years later before we finally start getting some cracks in the case on this thing. And it's a rather tragic story, Dad. I mean, unfortunately, five years later after he disappears, his mother, who must be completely grief-stricken through all this, takes her own life. Family members make the connection that she just she couldn't handle the fact that there was never any closure on him to that point. So it takes yeah. all the way up, right? So all these things happen, and that's tragic as it is. And then finally in 1995, we start, we start hearing some things. Some, something happens. So take us up to, to that timeline and, and what we're able to figure out then. Well, throughout the entire time from when he went missing in 52 all the way to 95, we as a nation are always going to be, we're looking for, and we're looking for, for clues. There's an, now it's an agency, DPAA, um, uh, there in the Pentagon that basically is responsible for POWs, MIAs. It used to be called DPMO. We have a joint accounting office on uh, in Hawaii. But so you're always looking for cracks in a case. We're still doing that today. Um, as you mentioned, um, especially in the in the Indo-Pacific region, whether it be the Burma hump, whether it be Vietnam, South Korea, China, uh, North Korea, and, and also in places throughout Europe and other places around the world, as you mentioned, especially when you start about the Cold War, different story. But in, uh, so in 1995, we have an American businessman who's doing business up in the city of Dandong. And I've been to Dandong as a, as a defense attache when I got to go up there. And uh, in 95, this is now becoming a prime place for business in the very south part of China, right on the North Korean border. It's right on the Yalu River. In fact, if you went there today and you stood in the middle of the Yalu River and you looked at Dandong, you were thinking, you would think that you were looking at Atlanta almost. You know, it's something like that. It's pretty amazing. So he's there and he goes into this military museum. And as he's walking through this military museum, he sees these dog tags and he recognizes they're American dog tags from, American, from an American uh, serviceman. He tries to request to have the dog tags. They, of course, the Chinese tell him that's impossible, right. but he knows enough to do a rubbing. They let him do a rubbing of the dog tags and he gets that information. And again, he knows enough and he passes that on to the, uh, to the American embassy in Beijing. At many of our embassies, especially where we have had, uh, where we fought in combat. So in China, uh, Japan, uh, Vietnam, you know, Germany, we have within the attache office and the attache office that I was in charge of. And by, and oh, by the way, when this, when, uh, when this all happens, as we get to 2004, I just got there at the end of 2004, there is always one attache who's responsible for uh, missing in action POW cases. And in our case at the American embassy in Beijing, we had one Marine attache and it was a Marine by the name of Major Mick Riva, uh, an amazing individual, yeah. an amazing patriot, uh, retired now today. But um, so Mick wasn't there in 95. But anyway, they that attache gets that information and now knows Captain Troy Cope, dog tags found in Don Dong, right up on the north side of the Yalu River, can now dig into the research, finds out that he went missing on the 16th of September 1952. And with that, that now gives that DPMO office and the ambassador 
fuel to go to the Chinese to go, look, we think we got a guy, you know, or at least we got a location um, because we've been we have been trying at that point in 95 working more and more with the Chinese as they were trying to as they opened up a little bit to be able to come in and find uh, those who were missing potentially, you know, from the Korean War. So that happens uh, basically in in 90 and 95. And so that is really the first crack in the case that we got something. We got some potential here to find Gordy. Something you mentioned in there and you've mentioned it before a few times, you talked about this Russian report. Right. So so we find out through the years that. All right. So it's not Koreans that shoot them down. It's actually Russians that are up there flying as part of this, providing some assistance throughout this conflict, thus the much more skilled in the air to be able to do that. So you mentioned the Russian report. I also want to know and walk. You're going to need to walk me through the timeline of not just the Russian report, but there's a plane that went down. Like this thing's got to be somewhere. Right. So what happens, right. Where, where does he go when he goes down? What happens? And so I'm going a, I'm to a rely on you to walk us through what happens first. Is it Russian report first that then tells us where you think he might be that then unpacks where the plane ultimately ended up? How does all that happen? Yeah. So the way it, it, uh, the way I believe it happens and as I read through everything is the Russian report really then helps that adds that second piece and, and really allows us to go. We know for sure. And that Russian report is found in 1998, um, within the DPMO, uh, there was a joint commission support directorate that it basically is allowed access to Russian reports and on the Russian side, uh, there is a similar office that's allowed access to American reports of incidences like this, that, hey, I had, a, I had an air-to-air engagement, I had an air-to-air dogfight um, on this date at this location. Um, and when you look at the Russian report, just like an American would have done, the Russian pilot comes comes back, submits his report saying, I shot down this aircraft. They have his gun, what we call the gun camera film. And, it, and in that mm-hmm. day and age, most of the shoot downs were all with guns. Yep. We really didn't have air to air missiles like we do now in long range. And you don't see each other necessarily and that kind of stuff. And so. So now as we get access to that report, you go, well, this is the the exact day. This is in the location. Um, and, and it details how he did that. And, it, and, it, and there's somebody, there's an official within the Russian system that certifies this guy's report is right and gives him, uh, gives him so he can get credit for a kill. It's the same sure. process that we have. Right. Right. And in any place, you know, you get five kills, you're an ace. And so any, any one of our pilots would have done the same thing, whether it be World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam. Um, even in the Gulf Wars, Desert Storm. Um, there's another whole story there. It, it's uh, why with, with, it's why the 335th Fighter Squadron out of Seymour Johnson Air Force Base can take claim to the world's leading MiG, leading, MiG killers, right? And we're going to come to that connection sure. here from the from the Korean from the Korean War. Um, and so that with that report now, again, we know date, date, time, location confirmed Russian pilot says he shot, you know, shot him down and all that kind of thing. So now we as a as a nation go into the rush, go into the Chinese 
and say, we have this location. We believe there's remains there. There could be remains. We'd like to come in and do a preliminary investigation, you know, talk to people and do all that, do all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't, and that takes another six, I'm doing math in public, another six years into 2004 Mm -hmm. before they allow us to go in and go up into the Dondong area. And and you're basically being a detective. Um, And, and again, in this, you know, what, what am I trying to get to, um, you know, what what happened? Is there anybody still here that, that was there then? Yes. Was there, or does anybody have relatives that were there? I mean, you're just asking a lot of questions to try to find out what does anybody know? Did anybody see this thing go down? Does anybody know where somebody might've, I don't know, buried a plane? So what So what happens then is sure enough, they go in there with a small team and I don't remember the the number of people, but it's just a few people that go in. They're not going to do major excavation. They're going to talk to people. They might dig a little bit around and they wind up talking to some city officials. They go up to the location uh, or they, they, they do more investigating and they find out a villager who says, I helped dig the hole and push the airplanes and what appears to be what appeared to be the remains of a, of the pilot into the hole. Well, do, can you show me where it is? Yep. Come on, let's go follow me. Obviously he's talking to Chinese, right? And they go up a dirt trail up, not up a big mountain, but up, up a hill, up into the woods. And he goes, yeah, it was right. It was here. Um, knew the exact location. And I think there was another villager with them who knew the location too. Um, and so they, they do a little bit of digging and they actually find a, enough of an airplane piece that says, yeah, it's here. So now they got to go back to the Chinese again and get more, get further permission to go up and do a more detailed, a more detailed dig. And that doesn't take that long. Um, and by May, May or June, there's a, um, they're able to get in there and do a complete excavation. And you have the picture and I think you're going to put it when you build it, when you put it on the, your website and stuff. And you can see, it looks like, looks like people doing any type of an excavation, you know, like, a, an archeological, it's basically, it's an archeological dig. Um, and they go in and they find pieces of, uh, airplane pieces. And I think you might have saw the one picture there. You know, they put it, they take pictures, they put a ruler by it. They find a picture, they find a piece of a heel of a boot, right? They figure out the size. They knew the size that he wore. It was one size bigger because they wore thick socks because it was cold and those airplanes didn't have heat, right? Um, And uh, they eventually find some human remains that they are then able to bring back, do DNA, get with the family, get someone from the family who's willing to give DNA, and then they do a DNA match. 16 September, 1952. And at what point is that family finally able to say they found him? We got him. Yeah, so it's basically in the summer, late summer of 2004-ish, <clears throat> somewhere around that time period where they, there's confirmation that there's a DNA match um, between the remains that are there. And, and they find some other remains. They find a, some other uh, human remains. And we're not talking a lot, but mm-hmm. it's, it's enough. It's enough. To um, be and we're, yeah. And they find pieces of uniform and that kind of thing. 
Um, and, and of course, they're not gonna, we don't dig out the whole airplane and, and everything, but they, they got what, everything that they could. Um, and then uh, that is brought back to the, uh, goes back through the, uh, the, the office, the joint accounting office that's in Hawaii and such. And then they get ready to work with the family to figure out how now they're going to repatriate the remains and what, what they want to do. And then I show up in Beijing um, at the end of November 2004. And that's when I um, become eventually become aware of this. And it's actually February of 2005 when um, I get personally in, involved. So I was going to ask you about that as well. And I want to talk about the importance of wh- just why this is so important for us to, to go after year after year after year to make sure this happens. Um, but first of all, and we're going to talk about your personal connection to him as well, but, but catch me up to speed as to how you end up there and, and how this sort of closing the book on this happens and, and what that looks like and, and, and who's involved in that. And, you know, it gets media attention and all these things. So, so take me to that February, 2005 and, and how we kind of close the book on this chapter for him. Right. So, you know, we're, we're talking about service, purpose, and impact. And, uh, you know, in the service part of this is that we as a nation, we're going to come find you. You know, if you pay that ultimate sacrifice, we're going we're gonna to do an awful lot. We're going to go to extraordinary lengths to come and find you uh, and bring you home. Uh, sometimes that happens quickly, days, weeks. Uh, sometimes it takes decades, as in this example. Uh, but that the purpose for doing that is for that closure for the family, and it's and it's the right thing to do to bring you back to your homeland and where the family decides that your remains are gonna are gonna be placed. And the impact that's there is, of course, the impact on the family, but it also has impact for those of us who serve that we know that if we do make that ultimate sacrifice, our nation's gonna come find us. And we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna rest at home. Um, ultimately, we, we all know where we're, we're resting and with Almighty God, but that's where we really wanna be. But still, our remains are gonna be there. Our family's gonna have that, that peace and that closure. Um, and that just allows us to be focused on our mission. And you know, you've always heard me talk about focus on the mission, right? We, we those that are serving going, okay, uh, yeah, I might have to pay the ultimate sacrifice. I can't worry about that. I've got to, I've got to be focused on, as you talked about with, with Spanky, I got to be focused on my training. What is my training now? How do I go out and I need to execute for what I need to execute? Spanky said the but, same thing when we had him on uh, recently in that he knows that his guys, when they go out on a mission, if they're flying a fighter or if they're on the ground and if they get stuck out there, he's coming for them, right? So his point was... I can go out there and do my job knowing if I get in the stuff, Spanky's going to come get me. He's going to come pick me up, right? Latrell is proof of that. Or to your point, uh, if they pay the ultimate price, we're coming for you. And to be able to know that, to know that your nation has your six, um, I don't know. Does anybody else do it? Like we no, do. nobody else does it like like we do. I mean, there are some of our allies that are closer to us, you know. And I'll I'll call on our Brit allies. You know, they're very good about that. The Aussies, I mean, uh, and and few others, but not as not as much as as what as what we do. And and we've we've had to do that because of where we have fought around the globe. 
you know, and where where we continue to fight around the globe um, and, and such. So, but um, and then so how do how do I get there? Uh, so anyway, I'm serving, of course, in the Air Force and uh, flying at times, not flying, and uh, I'm selected for Brigadier General in uh, 2000 and four, five, end of three, four, uh, or I'm sorry, 2003. Um, I, I pin on in 2004. Uh, when I am selected, after I'm selected, uh, I find out that I'm going to go be the defense attache in Beijing, China, which was a complete shock. Um, but, you know, mom and I are okay, we're going. That's what we're here to do. And so uh, I wind up there leading the defense attache office, which is about 24 people all total, 12 attaches, including myself, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Um, at the time, uh, some NCOs, non-commissioned officers, and then some civilians. So, um, and this is really sort of the first big thing that kind of, not big thing, yeah, kind of big thing that happens. I've been there a couple months, and uh, we know that the folks from DPMO are coming in. Major Mick Riva that I told you, you know, Mick uh, tells me that, uh, you know, because they're going to come over because they want to make the formal announcement about the remains. They want to do it at the site because this is a big public relations. And also now it puts some more pressure on the Chinese to allow us to be able to do more of this. Um, and so now we're sitting in my office uh, in February, sometime in February, and I'm talking to not the lead guy, but uh, who's, who is there, but like sort of the, the guy who's doing all the legwork and everything else about this, because I had, I had, I, I had interest. I wanted to know, um, who Troy flew with, because I knew the history of not only I knew the history of, of what at that time um, was the fourth fighter inter interceptor group, which uh, eventually becomes the fourth tactical fighter wing, which becomes the fourth fighter wing, which is where I fly F-15Es in for a number of years um, from uh, the, the early 90s or from all the way up until uh, 2001. Not, so not consistently, but on and off. So in connecting the dots of that and knowing your history with the fourth fighter wing, which before that was his tactical group, what are you able to, to find out that connects you to this man who you've never met, uh, who you become part of this, you know, uh, big send off to be able to send him home. But then you find out there's even more detail there. Yeah. So I'm sitting in the office with, uh, with, with this, uh, guy, I don't remember his name. And I say to him, I said, what squadron was, uh, Troy Copin. He goes, I don't know. Let, let me see. So he pulls out the report and I got the copy of the report right here. He goes, he was in the 335th fighter interceptor squadron. I go, I was the commander of the 335th fighter squadron from 1994 to 1996 in the F-15E. That's the same exact squadron. Our, on our scarves, uh, we have world leading MIG killers, 218 MIG kills to date. He goes, whoa. He said, you commanded that same squadron. I said, yeah, 40 years later, you know, I'm comm I commanded that same squadron that, that he was in. He goes, we have Barbara Starr with us from CNN. And as you mentioned, they, they did a big documentary on this, which I think was very well done. He goes, she's going to want to talk to you. <laughs> I'm like, happy to do that. Um, and he said, you're coming with us when we go up there, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm coming with you. You know, I'll, I'll be your escort and myself and Nick are coming. Um, and so that connection to me right away was just phenomenal, knowing that here is a guy that is in the same squadron that I wind up being the squadron commander of as a lieutenant colonel. And now, you know, you have that instant connection. 
I know you've got so many stops along your military Air Force career uh, that are special to you, and they all have different meaning. I know how much commanding that elite squadron meant to you along that career path and and how you'll you'll always be a chief. I can see you now as we're recording this, and you've got at least three that I can see behind you, chief pieces of memorabilia in your what we call the squadron bar at your house. So, so to hear about that personal connection to him is important to, to know about um, in, in a fleeting moment, this thing that happens to him that ultimately takes his life. And then to know that 52, that all these years later, not 52, it happens in 1952, all these years later, we're able to make him whole and his family whole. What's that mean to you as a member of the United States military? Well, again, it, it falls right back into that, uh, what we're talking about here, the service, the purpose, the impact, um, and that we're going to do the right thing. We're going to do the right things right. We're going to do the right things right for the right reasons. And knowing that we were able to go find him, the fact that I got to go up there on the ground, I put a coin in the ground there, I buried a coin, um, and then to be able to come back and that that spring in May of 2005, they're going to bury his remains in Plano, Texas. Well, after we come back from going up there and doing all that, doing all that stuff, and I get the interview with Barbara Starr and everything, I call the wing commander at the fourth fighter wing at Seymour Johnson, you know, who I knew. And I'm like, you guys got to do the flyby. And oh, by the way, the chief's got to do the flyby. He goes, Dice, we're, we're all over that. He says, happy to do that. Um, and so sure enough, he works with the contact with the family. And, and I, and I also, I talked to the nephew, I called the nephew after I'd gone up there to the site to let him just know the whole story and to make the connection and, and why this was so important and what, and what I was going to do to help, to help them out. So sure enough, the, the 335th fighter squadron chiefs, they do the flyby down, uh, down in Plano, Texas. Um, and then when they come back, you know, with F-15Es and then when they come back, in the squadron, what we call the main briefing room, it's a little auditorium. On the back wall, we have the wall of honor. And on one side is uh, those who uh, are missing in action. And on, on the other side are those who have been killed in action. And I did a little ceremony to move his name from the MIA side over to the KIA side. Even though everybody had known that he was gone, it was that last piece of that formality to put him over on that side, honored uh, with his, you know, much dignity and honor from everybody in the squadron to recognize that ultimate sacrifice that uh, that Gordy paid on the 16th of September, 1952. And so um, we, we, we completed that whole process 40 something years later, um, no, 50 something years later uh, by the time that is done. To think about the journey that it takes for this young man who is uh, a veteran of World War II, who steps back up and steps back into the fray during the Korean War to go up there to serve his nation with pride and honor, to ultimately pay that price. And for all those years later, for our nation to have the dedication to uh, not only find him, bring him home uh, and make that moment for his family. And then to hear that on the wall of honor at the 335th squadron, they're able to move his name officially from missing in action to killed in action. It is a powerful story uh, that exemplifies once again, 
how the United States uh, will pay any price, bear any burden uh, for that assurance of liberty. It's powerful. Lieutenant General Ralph J. Jodas, thank you so much for sharing this story with us today. I'm Brian Jodas, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>